Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. I think it's been a couple months since I've preached, and what a strange passage to come back on. I could blame Lawrence or Deirdre, but I'm the one that, that sets up the schedule, and uh, I'll explain in a moment during the course of the sermon uh, why this passage and the wisdom behind it. Um, the uh, I'm sure, well, maybe, I'm not so sure. Those of you that maybe caught wind of it, either from the media or aware of uh, Jennifer Lopez marrying Ben Affleck, if you notice that, which, you know, I, you, I think probably most of you understand that I don't pay attention to much of that celebrity stuff. But I was reading the New York Times, and there was an opinion article on it, not on the actual fact that they, they got married. It was a midnight wedding in Las Vegas. Um, this is her fourth marriage. I don't know how many marriages uh, Ben has had. It's been a number as well. But the, the op-ed piece was about the fact that she changed her last name to Jennifer Affleck, which is the first time she's done it in the, in the four marriages that she's had. And so the piece went on uh, explaining essentially how um, Jennifer Affleck has damaged feminism. Uh, she has submitted to a culture similar to that of the Handmaiden's Tale, if you're familiar with that book or the, the miniseries that came out, um, and that she has missed, that Jennifer Affleck has missed an opportunity to strengthen a female identity and the legal standing of women. And the last line of the article, it says this, people just view it, the changing of, of a name to the name of, the last name of the wife to the name of the husband. People just view it as a nice tradition that doesn't matter, but it is about power, and it does matter. Now, I'm not, this is not a sermon, I, it, it, this is not a sermon about whether women should change their last names or not. That's not at all what I'm addressing. What I'm addressing uh, is how we think of ourselves and the culture that we live in. And how we think about ourselves is going to affect how we think about ourselves, when I say ourselves, like our individual persons, our individual identities. It's going to affect how we think about ourselves and our families. It's going to, think, it's going to affect how we think about ourselves within the church and what our mission is. So our culture has, at this moment in time, uh, a very strong emphasis on and, and the need for individuals to pursue uh, and determine their own identity, they, to acquire their own power, to make a name for oneself. Literally, that's kind of what this article is addressing, keeping your own name, making a name for yourself, uh, establishing your own personal niche of being recognized and known as an individual, of building an identity around your, your accomplishments, your personality, what makes you unique, and kind of anything that doesn't kind of contribute to that, um, maybe need to, to de-emphasize or discard. And it's easy for us to think that, well, you know, I, I don't think this way, I'm not, you know, but we are in this culture. We are in this culture. Uh, Charles Taylor, one of the preeminent philosophers of this modern age, he says, we cannot fail to think and to live in according to these patterns that we're a part of. It's, it is the air we breathe. It is the water that we swim in. 
And his argument is that, you know, it, it, these, we, we, kind of, we kind of see this way of life here in our contemporary world as this is the ideal. This is what it means to be human. Uh, this is what it means to be realized and fulfilled. And it's just the way we think now. And different ages have thought differently about what it means to be a human being, about what it means to be a self, about what it means to establish identity, where we get identity from. And so, obviously, one of the calls that Christ has upon us in our lives is to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so this passage today, it obviously, it's a strange passage. It seems very harsh, especially to women, to wives. And, you know, I, this week I was explaining the sermon to uh, Anna and Alicia over dinner one night, and I could hardly get through it, you know, without being constantly interrupted because, well, is there a test for the, a husband? What if a wife is suspicious of her husband committing adultery? So I just, anyway, I gave him the punchline. Oh, it all makes sense. So there, it, this passage does make sense. And, and you know, the series that we're, we're going through here on the Pentateuch is to know, fear, and love God and to worship him. That's what we're trying to see in the Pentateuch. And you read a passage like this and you're like, you know, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that this is a God I want to know, love, or worship, because it's really strange, and it seems really harsh, and it seems really unfair in a lot of ways. And so when we run across these kinds of passages in the Bible, because they're used, I mean, you know, if you've read the book, The Handmaid's Tale, or if you've watched that television series, there are all kinds of biblical passages pulled out, out of context, and, not, and certainly not explained, and certainly not the product of, you know, good biblical scholarship that just makes it seem like the biblical God and, and biblical Judaism and Christianity are just wacko, right? And... To their credit, a lot of passages have been abused to uh, affirm male domination and the abuse of women and children and, and all these kinds of things. So there, it, there, it is fair in a lot of ways. But you run across these passages, these kinds of passages, they need to be explained. They need to be explained and understood. Otherwise, we just keep reading through, and we're like, man, what, what is going on there? I remember I asked Nicole to read, and she says, you know, I've always wondered what in the world is going on with that passage. And so, obviously, the, the law that God is setting forth here in the book of Numbers establishes a process uh, for a husband to test his wife for adultery. That's, the pro- that's, that's what the law is addressing. And so... I, you know, the, I think it's pretty clear if a husband believes his wife has committed adultery, he has to take a grain offering to the priest. He brings his wife along. The priest goes through this ritual and has the wife um, communicate an oath, acknowledging and basically just affirming this, what, what she's about to enter into. Um, and she, he mixes up a solution of water and dust from the ground all right, and then she has to drink it. If she gets sick and starts to feel a lot of pain, that means she's guilty. And it says, you know, it says 
that her thigh will fall out. It's her uterus. And so for some reason, there are a number of places throughout the Old Testament that uses, it's translated as the word thigh. Basically, it's, it's uh, a, the private parts of a male or female. When Abraham is making a covenant with his, with his servant, um, Eleazar, I think his name is, um, it said he, he put his hand under his thigh. It's, I mean, it was this, it's, that's just what it is. So basically, her uterus falls out if she's guilty, and she is no longer able to bear children, obviously, and then she's a pariah to the community. That's if she's guilty. If she's not guilty, then everything's fine. She can continue to have children. It doesn't say anything about the relationship that she's going to have with her husband, <laughs> because I, I don't imagine that would be a very pleasant situation to go through, knowing that you're innocent and then happen to live with the guy for the rest of your life. But anyway, we'll come to explaining this now. The text explains something, there's something else going on in the text that isn't immediately clear. In verses 29 and 31, it says, if the, if, if the woman, if the wife is found guilty, the husband shall be free from iniquity. It's like, I thought we were testing the possible iniquity of the wife. So the question you have to ask is, if the wife is found innocent, does he then bear iniquity? So the, the impetus for the law, I mean, it seems like, you know, God never wasted a law, Leon Cass says. So laws are created to curb evil behavior. And so if you ask yourself, well, what sort of evil behavior is God trying to curb with this law? You think, well, he's trying to curb adultery. Well, he's already got laws that have been stated in Leviticus prohibiting adultery. If a man or woman, if, well, if, if a man and woman were found in the act of adultery, they were immediately stoned. All right? So death was the penalty for adultery, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy. So we already have, and you're expecting kind of as you're reading through this, oh, the consequence is going to be death for this woman. Well, that's not the consequence. So something else is going on here. The, 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 the Mosaic law allowed divorce in cases of adultery. Husbands could write a certificate of divorce and divorce their wives. It doesn't say anything about a wives writing a divorce, divorce certificate and divorcing their husbands. It wasn't as common, and I'm going to explain that now. So in Malachi chapter 2, so the, it's, who's a prophet, the prophets were, were explaining the judgment of God against Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness. And in Malachi, we see one of the things, I think he addresses three things in the entire book. One of the things that God is bringing judgment upon Israel and Judah for is for husbands' unfaithfulness to their wives. And I'm going to read it. It's out of Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And this, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. 
though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And so what was happening in the nation of Israel, and see, the prophets are addressing sins that had always been committed. Remember, the nation of Israel wasn't any different than the nations around it. God was calling out the nation of Israel to be different from the nations around it, but they essentially were just doing what the nations around them always had done. So one of the things, as I think we all could understand and see in our own culture, um, as they grew older, the husbands would grow tired of their wives, They'd be attracted to younger women. They would trump up some charges against their wife and say, hey, she's committed adultery. Here's my certificate of divorce. She's now a pariah to the community. I'm going to marry this younger woman. That's what was happening. That's what was happening. This kind of behavior is not, it wasn't new to Israel. It had been going on. It goes on now. We all understand the unfaithfulness of husbands. And so this law in the book of Numbers would detect true adultery. I mean, God was there present. It, was, it involved the priest. God was witness to the union when they became married. God is involved in this process. If there truly was adultery, it would detect it, and the consequences would then be carried out. But not only and I would say especially, it was also to detect the unfaithfulness of husbands. Because if you knew that you had to go through this kind of a trial, and you knew you had to put your wife through this kind of a trial, and you knew that it was going to show one way or another, it ultimately is protecting wives from treacherous husbands. That's what the law is for. Otherwise, the husbands could just write a certificate of divorce, and be on their way. And who's going to argue against them? Well, even though the law is here, hundreds of years later, Malachi is still addressing this issue. So just like, just like the Passover ritual, a lot of different laws, Israel did not obey a lot of their laws. And what was happening is wives and their children were being left to fend for themselves so the husbands could pursue younger women. So that's... That's essentially what's going on. So I want to make three observations. First of all, God pursues and is establishing a people characterized by righteousness and justice. Righteousness is essentially the way things should be in individuals and families, in society as a whole. That's what righteousness is. If everything were right, right? if everything were right, Everybody would have this, this sense of confidence and peace and joy and wholeheartedness, all right, as individuals, as families, as a community. It would be the kingdom of God. That's essentially what full and total righteousness is. When, Jesus, when we believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness, all right? So God is after righteousness. And in the absence of righteousness, he pursues justice, which are the efforts 
to restore things to a place of righteousness. So we can see here in this law, God not only working against any unexposed adultery, but mostly working against and putting a guardrail up against husbands who would be unfaithful to their wives by requiring a test of really essentially their word. Both men and women can be guilty of sexual immorality and adultery. The scriptures are very clear about that from the very beginning. But what you can see in the books of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy is that by and large, the perpetrators of sexual immorality and adultery are men. That's just, I mean, we see it. There's a reason why the Me Too movement came up, right? And the law recognizes that, and God recognizes that. And these kinds of laws, while they may seem harsh, and even, you know, if you look at the, the prohibitions, and I think, I, I can't remember if it was Lawrence or Deirdre covered the, the laws against sexual immorality, but a lot of the punishments for sexual immorality, whether you're male or female, seem really harsh. Well, at the core of it, at the core of it, and this kind of brings up the second observation, is God protecting family, marriage, and the next generation. So God is working to protect victims, which are usually women and children. And so in this, in this second observation, what God is doing, you know, there's, there's husbands, wives, families, and this power dynamic. You know, three times the word authority is mentioned. You know, if a wife has, has even though she's under the authority of her husband, authority is the word power. It is the word power. And that's really the concern of the writer of this op-ed piece in the New York Times. Power to this author of the op-ed piece, and I can't, I can't remember her name. For her, power was a means of establishing a name for yourself. That's essentially the argument of the, of the op-ed piece. But not only was it making a name for yourself, it was also identifying yourself as a... a a, a woman who needed to stand up for women. Even though not necessarily all women would subscribe to this woman's worldview or point of view. This, this author of the op-ed piece wanted this, this uh, believed that she, Jennifer Affleck should have used her power to, to strengthen the cause for women, the political power of women, the legal power of women, versus... Jennifer's desire to identify herself with her husband, which is what she did, and the purpose of the family. So it's never just individual. It's always, it's always group. So, you know, this, this ambition of making a name for yourself, it, it, is, it is one of the quintessential phrases throughout the Bible that identifies something completely opposed to God. If you think back to the Tower of Babel, which we covered Last fall, we went through Genesis. Um, it says, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us not be dispersed among, across the earth, which is what God had told humanity to do. He said, let's stay here. Let's build a great big city. Let's build a tower that reaches the heaven and make a name for ourselves. That's what they say. Well, in that you find two things, I think. Uh, there's this desire for an individual naming of oneself. Let's do something on our own. But it's also a collective. Hey, let's all be individual selves and not submit to God. 
So this idea of making a name for yourself is, is, is what it means to be opposed to the purpose of God. You know, one of the, in, you know, uh, we've referenced Leon Cass's book. So Leon Cass is a, he's a medical doctor turned a philosopher ethicist. He's a, his, his, and then he became not only a medical doctor from Harvard, he became a philosopher trained under Chicago and and he spent the last 20 years of his life teaching Exodus and Genesis, and he just came out with a book on Ruth, but also, you know, Aristotle and, you know, all these Greek philosophers. And, and um, I just completely forgot my point. <laughs> oh, well, I must not have been very important. But I wanted to explain where he was. Oh, one of the so he would for twenty years he's been teaching graduate level classes at the University of Chicago in what is called the Committee on Social Thought, which is one of the preeminent um, graduate programs for people pursuing the classics and for high level philosophy. And he says one of the complaints that he would consistently get is is you know there's this great story in the Book of Exodus of God freeing a people. You know, but the complaint from the students was, you know, God is freeing these people from slavery to Egypt, but they're not really free. They are now enslaved to God, which is his point. Yeah, we are not free. We are always serving and worshiping and following someone or something. And so, as Christians, when we become Christians, when we get baptized, remember what? We are baptized or immersed into the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Spirit. That's our new identity, God. All right? It's not even our own personal names anymore. We have a new name. And the book of Revelation says when we enter into the kingdom, we all get another new name. It doesn't say what it's going to be. But we are in the family of God identified with his name. If we marry, God makes us into a new family. We become a new thing. When, as a husband or as a wife, we are a new thing. God is witness to it, and the text says he imparts some of his spirit into that union, and he is witness to it. So as a family, we have a, a purpose and a calling uh, that God has given to us, and we have power. The husband has power, and the wife has power. Not to make a name for ourselves, but to fulfill God's purpose. What did it say? It says, why did God make man and woman to come together as husband and wife? It's one of the clear statements on marriage in all the Bible. To produce godly offspring. Why godly offspring? Because God is working over the generations, ultimately looking to that final generation when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and God has his people on this earth. Remember that that's why Genesis is tracing the offspring. We're looking, we are, all of humanity is supposed to be looking for this offspring. And we all as families produce offspring to create godly children for the next generation to the next generation. And every generation is a witness of the gospel then to the world. So we have a calling and a mission as, as families, as a church family, because not everybody in the church family has a nuclear family. We are all the family of God. And that identity as a member of the family of God is a greater identity than that of the individual family. Our individual families are not the mission. 
we as members of the family of God are all on the same mission. And when we get to the kingdom, there is no more marriage, there is no more family, but there will be the family of God. Our families are to be used to produce godly children for the next generation of the family of God. That's what families are for. Now, there's a lot of other purposes in marriage. And there's a lot of, you know, Song of Solomon, the entire book is about the romance and intimacy of a husband and wife in marriage and the personal joy that it brings them. Okay, there's companionship. There's a lot of other reasons for marriage. But the singular, most important main reason that God produced man and woman to be husband and wife is to produce godly offspring for the next generation. So we can use our power as husbands, fathers, as wives and mothers for husbands and fathers. We have power to protect, to provide, to serve to lay our lives down for the well-being of that family. That's what our power is for. The alternative is Lamech, Genesis chapter 4, where we use our power to hurt women, to hurt children, to become become polygamous and gather women around ourselves and be violent. Men can use power in two different ways. And the two, two ways are shown in Scripture. Children of Lamech are violent, and that's how the story unfolds. Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, the earth is filled with violence. Why? It's filled with Lamechs. It's filled with men who use their power to oppress children and women and other people. Wives and mothers, you have power. And those of you, we've all been in a family. You're in a family now. You can observe families. We all know Wives and mothers have a lot of power. It's different. And they are to use that power not to make a name for themselves, but to build and strengthen their husbands and the the family. They're not to be divided with a separate mission. And that's what, you know, submission means you, wives, you have a mission. Let your mission be your husband's mission. Don't have your own mission. Don't create a divided household. Divided households create Unstable children. You have violent, unstable children that don't understand their purpose if you have children of Lamex and wives that use their power for their, their own name. And in the case of adultery, the, the reason why this law is so strong, so if you have wives committing adultery, who's going to take care of children? Is the, quote, new husband who's just in it for the sex going to take care of unplanned children? Is the old husband that the wife is betraying, is he going to take care of kids that he didn't plan for and aren't even his? The reason why the woman is no longer going to be able to bear children is because God does not want people who aren't committed to marriage and self-control and raising a godly generation to to continue to have more kids because it will the kids are not going to be healthy and the society will be affected so god is is doing what he can with the evils of humanity to create a righteous and just people The third observation I want to make, because this is, you know, it's the Old Testament. It's, it's hard. I just had an image of uh, Samuel Jackson in uh, 
oh, what's the name of that show? Always, he's quoting the, the Old Testament prophets whenever he's about to like kill somebody. Pulp Fiction, that's it. Yeah, he just goes Old Testament on people. Old Testament's hard. But the third observation I want to make is, is to highlight and to give glory to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, abolished the laws and the commandments of the Mosaic law. They're gone. This law is gone. All those laws against all those sexual immoralities, or ste- all those laws are gone. Imagine living under the law. See, here's the deal. We are all adulterers. In fact, that becomes the metaphor for the nation of Israel uh, basically <laughs> immediately. And I think, you know, we've been sh- telling the story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God since, since they became a nation. But the metaphor in the prophets, the prominent metaphor for, the pro- for Israel in the prophets is that Israel is an unfaithful wife to her husband, God the Father. We're all adulterers. We're all Lamechs. We're all Babylonians seeking a name for ourselves. If there's, if there's one phrase I think that, would, that could identify our cultures, we're all striving to make a name for ourselves. And the use of our social media and technologists affirms that. We have all been unfaithful to God. The law, the five books of Moses, and the laws contained within them, the Mosaic Code, they have identified sin in all of us. We can't walk through these books and say, man, you know, thank goodness that's not me. You are somewhere in the five books of Moses. All right? You may be a Lamech. You may be the adulterous wife. You may be a thief. You may be a violent per- Who knows? You may be a liar. You may be, heck, grumbling when you don't like the food that's set before you. You know, that's the repeated sin of Israel, and we're going to address that next week. Who has never grumbled with the food that was set before you? All right. We are all Israel. But the law, the five books of Moses, and the laws, the Mosaic Code, also point us to the bigger picture. What's the bigger picture? Hey, we are looking, we are looking for Messiah. We are looking for a Savior to come and rid us and this world and a people. We all long for a great nation to live in, don't we? That's the longing of humanity, to live in a righteous and just nation. God isn't just trying to save us as individuals. He is coming to bring a righteous and just nation. That's what we all long for. We are all longing for that, and that is the story, the biggest part. That is the, that is the story that all these other sub-stories and laws fit underneath. Yeah, sin is real. We've all committed these kinds of sins, but there is no sin that is bigger than the promise of the grace of God through Jesus Christ to build a righteous and just people of which we are a part as individuals. He's calling us to him. He's calling us to find ourselves in him, not in our own name. And when we go to him, I'm in my annual reading through the Bible, and I'm in the Psalms right now. Just The Psalms are just so incredible. Thank God for his forgiveness, for, for, 
for forgetting our iniquities, for taking our sins and separating us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. There is, there is no sin, even the sins of adultery and murder, violence. These sins are not unforgivable. See, because Jesus became the cursed adulterer. He was a pariah in the nation of Israel. They cast him out of the city, and they murdered him and hung him on a tree. He became that so that we could have his righteousness. 2 Corinthians, it, it's, it, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he became sin so that we could become his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. And that's the promise of the gospel. So if you're sitting here today as a believer or as an unbeliever, and you're just kind of overwhelmed by the seriousness and, the, and the, the, the harshness of these laws and what our sin deserves, draw near to Jesus Christ because he took that and he provided forgiveness through his death on the cross, through his curse, so that we could be lifted free from the curse that we all deserve. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this text that really forces us to, to think deeper and to, to draw near to, to you and to your heart and to your mind. God, thank you for um, striving for all of these generations to create a people known for righteousness and known for justice. And so God, we, we as a people long to, to uh, fulfill your calling upon our lives as a local church expression of your kingdom here in this age. God, help us to, to set aside, help us to see and to set aside all of these pressures and temptations to make a name for ourselves, to use the power that we have to serve ourselves. God, help us to use the power that we have to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.